step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hi, and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and here we are on episode 16. I am uh, so incredibly delighted and honored to have as my guest today, Mr. Pat Rush. Big hand for Pat, everybody. Whoa. Thank you very much. It's uh, Pat Rush. Um, when I, how did I find Pat? And then I'll tell you who he is. So I woke up around five o'clock in the morning a few weeks ago. I couldn't sleep. Do you sleep very well? Most of the time, yeah. You, you do sleep well. Yeah. So you don't like pee during the night or anything like that. No. Oh, you're lucky, man. That's another story. I'll tell you that. It's later. another show, eh? Yeah. So yeah. I wake up at five in the morning and I see uh, I go on my phone, which you're not supposed to do. And I, <laughs> I do you do that? Do you go on your phone? No. Yeah, you're not supposed to. So so, so I see a message from Pat Rush to the late Jeff Healy. And I love Jeff Healy. Um, Me too. Yeah, I know you do, man. We're going to get to that in a sec. Anyways, and it was basically, I think about you every day, buddy, and I miss you very much. And then I, I, I do it a little due diligence quickly, and I realize that you were in his band. And you sent out uh, good wishes to his spirit. I thought, you know, well, what the hell, man? I'm going to give it a shot. You know, you, you know, those moments, Pat, when you're never sure if something can come to fruition, like in your mind, it seems too big, but you say, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyways. You know, those moments, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you must have had plenty of those. Sure. So I said, I'm going to send out an email to Pat. So I sent him out an email or a text or whatever it is. And I said, listen, here's who here's who I am. This is uh, what I'd like to do. I'd love to interview you because of your background. And you very graciously said, yeah. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. My, yeah. My pleasure. So Pat Rush is a guitarist, right? You're a guitarist. Yes, sir. From the inside out, because you fix guitars and you play guitars. And here's who he's played with, okay? So if you are a guitar aficionado, listen closely. He's played with uh, Johnny Winters. Yep. Uh, James Cotton. Johnny, the, Johnny Winter. Johnny Winter. Thank you. Almond Brothers. I uh, sat in with them. Sat in with them, right? Dwayne was uh, my slide teacher. He taught you slide, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff Healy. Jeff Healy. Muddy Waters. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I'm going to stop there for now. We'll build upon that during the show. But suffice it to say, this is like, you're like the king of kings when it, when it comes to playing with great guitarists. I've been very lucky. Um, some of those I actually played in bands with, and some of them were more like, Sitting in and jam situations, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess I, I guess that we, what we could say is that it's your career has been. I mean, you were born in 1952. You started playing when you were about 13 years old. 1965. So, I mean, you must have been from the start. It's in your DNA. You must have been a great, great guitar player. No, you know what it was. Well, some people say that. Yeah. Um, what what started 
it for me, which did for millions of others, was 1964, seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, like many others. And I so I thought, hmm, I want to do that. I mean, you know, within a couple of years after I started, um, we played, we got invited to play at a church dance by the pastor. And nice. the four of us got trucked down there in this parent station wagons, you know. And uh, at the end... Of the night when he finished playing, the pastor came up and said, thank you for playing, and handed me four or five dollar bills. Yes. This is down in Virginia. And I said, what's this for? And he said, this is for coming to play, because there was never any money discussed. Yes. And of course, in 19, that was about 1967, 20 bucks was like 200 now. It was a know? lot of bread. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, thank you, and I passed five dollar bills out to everybody, and a light bulb went off. Yeah. And I went, wait a minute. You mean I could make a living playing guitar? Right. That's where that started. That's amazing. Yeah. Not expecting any anything. Five bucks, I got five bucks. Yeah, you know? yeah. The, the, those are amazing moments, aren't they? Yeah. Because, I mean, when you think about your own personal narrative, mm-hmm. like the Pat Rush story, right, That that's a prominent story. Yeah. Because if that wouldn't have happened, who knows where you would have gone? Well, I was I was into guitar. I don't know if I, you know, I and never had dawned on me at that until that moment that you could maybe make money doing it. Right. Like maybe I could actually make a living doing. It. Right. Right. And uh, that's what started me from then on to going. Okay, I want paying gigs now. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I ain't paying for. But free, I want right? ten. <laughs> five's not enough like screw the five right yeah, give me ten <laughs> but what i find really interesting is that your father was an air force guy yes sir and my father was a rabbi okay and, and i think it's probably safe to say that in many ways i am not a rabbinical son would you say you're an air force son uh well in the way i grew up and moving around a lot and stuff like that yes but uh my my father always wanted me. I was the, I was the first born. We had three kids, me, and then five years later my brother, and then five years later my sister. Yes. And he always wanted me to follow in his footsteps. And he he, he uh, wanted to be a pilot. Uh, he was a flight engineer on bombers during World War Two. Yeah. Uh, bombing Japan and all that stuff, and flight engineers keep the plane going and you know all that kind of stuff. But he initially wanted to be a pilot. And the reason he couldn't be a pilot because he had a, the red and green color blindness. Oh. And now that doesn't hamper you. They have glasses that can correct that. Yes. But with all the lights going on in, you know, in the cockpit, you can't be a pilot if you can't tell which color, what color the lights are. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. So I, uh, I wasn't colorblind. I'm not colorblind. And I could have been a pilot. But I had no interest in that. Right. All I wanted to do was play guitar. I wanted music. I wanted to grow my hair long. Yeah. You know, and uh, and uh, he was, you know, you know, noticeably disappointed in that. But then my bro- my my brother was five years behind me. <clears throat> excuse me. And my father uh, got him into West Point, and then he took the pilot's test, and he was colorblind too. And back then, still, yeah, you couldn't get he pilot. couldn't fly. So it was very disappointing for him. Because neither one of his sons could, you know, fly, could could be pilots. Was he good with disappointment? Was he one of those guys who had you shine your shoes, all that stereotypical stuff that we think of when we think of Army people? Haircut, buzzed every two weeks, yeah. Was he strict? Did you have to call him sir? No, 
Nobody. Was he a good man? He was a great man. He was a great man. He he worked really hard. Like I said, he he was he joined the Army Air Force. Yes. Uh, very early on, and was still with them when they separated into two separate services, Army and Air Force. And during the twenty years he was with them, he took courses they they offered to pay your education and so he took courses on how to fix jet engines right. to be a jet engine technician right and then by the time he uh i want to say graduate again he uh by the time he retired he uh had learned how to be a, a, a great engine technician and he got a job with general electric and then for the next 20 years he was with general electric as a jet engine specialist and he did military. He did uh, commercial. Uh, we moved around just like when we were in the Air Force. Right. We moved around every three years or so, and, and we lived. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then we lived in Columbia, South Carolina, and then we lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and then Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and Tampa, Florida. Was that good, Pat, or did you consistently lose your friends? Well, no, I mean, you know, I was uh, I was pretty outgoing, and uh, I made friends every time we moved. I made new friends, and once I was playing uh, guitar, I found new people, right, right. new bands to play with, right. you know, everywhere we were. And um, yeah, uh, as as much as my father was against, you know, bell bottoms and tie dye shirts and, and the long hair, long hair and the music and all that stuff, he helped me build my first guitar amplifier. Oh, did he? When I first first got a an acoustic guitar in Virginia, what kind was it? Do you remember? It was an old, beat up, horrible silver tone acoustic guitar. Yeah. My neighbor Bobby Miles had it, and when I'd go to his house, he'd let me play it. And then one day he called me up and said, "Come over, I got a new guitar." And I came over, and he had this three four pickup Kent solid body electric and gold sparkle. Right. And my I was like, "Wow, that's really great, Bobby. What are you going to do with the other guitar?" <laughs> Would you sell it to me? And he said, sure. And I said, how much do you want for it? And he said, $13.95 or something like that. Some, it's a good figure. Yeah. Yeah. So I went home and I said to my mom, Mom, can you, can you loan me $13.95? What for? I said, well, I want to buy Bobby's guitar. And she said, well, last week it was a fireman. The week before that it was, you <laughs> right. know. There's a cop that it was the weekend before the week before that, you know, was something else. Now you want to be a guitarist. How do I know you're going to stick with it? Yeah. And I said, well, oh, I will, I will, I will. And she said, yeah. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll loan it to you. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll pay it back. So I used, I used our family lawnmower and went around the neighborhood mowing lawns for 50 cents a piece until I got enough money to pay her back. That's cool. What what was your mom like? My mom was a musician and an artist. What did she play? Play piano. Okay. And um, she's an artist. She painted, she sculpted, she did everything. But this is the best part of the story. Yes. When she got me, uh, a, a guy named Don Russell, who was a teenager, older than me, as a guitar teacher, she hired him to teach me guitar and ordered a 5995 Sears classical guitar yeah. from Sears. And it was a Yamaha, actually. And she took lessons with me. She did? She did. 
Oh, that's nice. She got me a guitar teacher, got herself a guitar. And uh, like I said, she already played piano, so she had music. She's a very good pianist as well. She, um, We sat there, and she, he was teaching us both at the same time. Did you go to him, or he came to your house? He came to our house. And um, you would sit there together learning? In the den, in front of the piano, you know. And um, at some point, after maybe nine or ten lessons, maybe a few more, Don said to my mom, you know, and, and we're using the old Mel Bay Mel Bay, method. sure, I remember Mel, Mel Bay, Bay method, yeah. Mel Bay 1, Mel Bay 2. Yeah. I, ha- I still have them all. I, I think I have some too After here. my mom passed uh, and we got stuff from her house, it yeah. was still in her piano bench, so I brought them home with me. Right. Those are special, right? So, yeah. yeah. She, he said he's already so far ahead in the books of what I'm teaching him now that you don't need me anymore. Yeah. And then she said, what do you mean? He said, well, let him keep going and let him teach you while he's learning. Which is what happened. Oh, uh, was she cool with that? She loved it. So there was like no envy. No, no, do, no. Do you know why I asked that question? There were, okay, there was there was only one thing. Let me answer that. One thing she envied is that I played by ear. I mean, I could read sheet music too because yeah. from uh, ninth grade up, I played uh, trumpet. I was first chair trumpet. Which, yeah. Oddly enough, I had that in common with Jeff. Yeah, he played trumpet too. He played That's trumpet right. too. That's right. Except he carried on playing trumpet. I dropped it. Well, you sold your trumpet. I traded my... For a guitar, right? Box, silver, trumpet, and a really beautiful Rickenbacker guitar in for an old beat-up Stratocaster because I, by that time I was into Jimi Hendrix and I had to have a Strat. Yeah, had to have a Strat. <laughs> yeah. So so your mom was a tad envious that you could play by ear. Yeah, because if you, took, if you put sheet music in front of her, she could play anything. Mm-hmm. If you took the sheet music away... She only had one or two or maybe three songs that she had memorized. Right. But beyond that, like she couldn't sit and jam. We attempted it a few times, but it was kind of hard. The reason I ask you if she was envious at all is I interviewed uh, Jose Feliciano. Yeah. And he, do you know him? I taught him slide guitar. You did? In New Orleans when he was uh, doing a a residency there for months and months and months one year. He came into a club I was playing at called the Ivanhoe on Bourbon Street. Yeah. And he sat in with us. I had a 335 there and an extra amp. He sat in and played with us. And after he had sat and listened you know, to us, he listened to me play for quite a while. And after he invited me to his table and he said, um, would you be willing to teach me how to do that slide thing? Right, right. He said, I have no idea, no concept. So every day for, I don't know, maybe... Within a month or so, I'd go over to his hotel, and uh, we'd sit, and I would teach him, gave him all the beginnings of slide, gave him a slide, showed him, how, physically showed him how, what the positions were, and explained to him that it's like a movable fret. So wherever you would put your finger, that's where you put the slide, okay. and you get the same note. Right. So when you're doing a scale up the fretboard with your fingers, it's exactly the same on slide. It's just that the slide now is the fret. Right. So right. you're moving the fret up and down the fretboard instead of fingering and, the and notes. And Dwayne Allman had taught you slide, right? Dwayne taught me my, my concept of slide. Um, my band in, in high school, uh, this is around 1969, 70, we went on tour through the South, doing college auditoriums and stuff like that, opening for the Almonds. 
Right. And we all traveled together and we all stayed in Holiday Inns, you know. <laughs> and of course, yeah. after the gig, we'd all be back in somebody's room at the Holiday Inn, you know, maybe token and having some beers and, you know. And Dwayne had an acoustic there and he was the first one that taught me uh, my concept of slide before that was, ain't that a whole lot of love? And you know right. the song. Yes, ain't I that do. a whole lot of love? And you know, that's <laughs> right. that's all I knew. Right. He taught me to tune to open E, and he taught me, you know, all of the positioning and and the scales, how you do that when it's tuned to a different chord, and so on and so forth. And right. and I I learned uh, from him. Hanging out in Holiday Inn hotel rooms after gigs, you know. Did you use the bottle? The bo- the. I had a, gla- a a metal slide, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no." Right, no. right. He taught you to use the bottle one, right? He gave me several uh, Corsetin D bottles. They were they were a cold medication, these big red pills in them, and uh, he used those. He turned me on to a couple. He just steamed the label off, and uh, I still have one of them. Do you? In my drawer at home with the label still on it. Yeah. I, I never never took the label off that one. And, of course, in the late 70s, when I was touring with the James Cotton Band, I was frantically going out in every town we went to to uh, drugstores and checking the shelves <laughs> because they switched from glass to plastic. Which pissed you off, right? Well, it pissed a lot of people off. Yeah. And uh, so if I found glass ones, like three, four, five, ten, I'd buy them. And one day I went, I think it was in Chicago, I went to this pharmacist with like seven or eight bottles of cortisone cold medicine, put them on the counter, and he, he, he gave me this look as a pharmacist. Right? Yeah, like, why are you buying all this shit, right? <laughs> the first thing he said to me was, can you get high on this stuff? Because right. I had, you know, hair down to my waist and, you know, and I said, no, 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 I don't even use those. He said, what do you use it for? I said, just just a bottle. I play guitar with it. Yeah. And he, he gave me this look like, right. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. And I said. You ain't fooling me. Okay, here's the deal. Because he, he didn't want to sell them to me. Yes. So I said, here's the deal. Have you got a trash can? Yeah. Slide it over here. I opened up every single bottle and dumped the pills out. That's a great story. And yeah. then put them back up and said, okay sell them to me now and he was like you really do play guitar with it yeah so yeah but anyway you know it's uh once i started playing slide it it became not an obsession but it was the thing i really loved doing the most that's what Derek truck says too oh yeah once he started he could not stop he's amazing he is do you know him i don't know him yeah i I knew his uh his uncle who's his uncle butch trucks okay is uh, the drummer, one of the drummers for the Almonds. So the reason I told you about Jose Feliciano, <clears throat> first he was a lovely guy. My partner Marty and mm-hmm. I, who did the ra- the food and restaurant show, which was a kooky, zany show, um, we sang Light My Fire with him on the, on the air. Really? Yeah. And I have to tell you, Pat, I've had a few experiences like that. I mean, one of the reasons I'm so excited about talking to you is because you've had a plethora of them. But to sing Light My Fire with Jose Feliciano yeah. on the air, yeah, that's like a gift. And he was so generous of, about it, too, you know? Like, I think people who are that big recognize that they can do nice things for others very often. And Hopefully. Jeff, Jeff yeah. Healy was like that, yep. too, right? Yeah. 
So anyway, so Jose tells a story. I feel the same way too. That if you can do something for someone, I, I try to help out young guitar players, and you know, right? I've given away a ton of guitars over have the you? years. Yeah, like which one? Do you regret giving away any? No, you don't, eh? I have way too many to begin with. How many do you have? Hmm. No, it's okay. I won't oh, tell anyone. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, sixty or seventy. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. Does it ever get too tedious? Like I know Eric Clapton sold off a bunch a few years ago. It's like I'm I so, don't need all these. Yeah, well, I'm in. I'm sort of in in the uh, beginning of purging some of them. Are you? Yeah. Is that healthy? Is it cleansing? Is yeah. it positive or is <clears throat> like oh damn? Yes, sir. It is. Okay. So, so don't have room for him. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> sure you don't. So Jose says that he was uh, starting to learn guitar. He was getting progressively better. He would play at coffee shops, and of course that would evolve into something bigger. Mm. And his father was jealous. Mm. His, his father was picking cotton. Well, there you go. Yes, there yeah, you go, exactly. You go. So hence my question to you, too, about your mother, whether she was envious of you at all, but clearly not. Only that I could play by ear and not have to have yeah. sheet music i wasn't tied to sheet music so so your parents were by and large they were supportive of you yes they were yes and 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 would you say that was a bit of an anomaly for that era and what your father well did like for i said my father wasn't at first first of all my father was born and raised on a farm in colorado he was up way early in the morning had to do chores and then go to school and then what come kind back of and what kind chores. of farm I don't know. Yeah. But farms, chores, farms, you know. Right, right. When he was a teenager, he would get up really early, do all his chores, drive a school bus, pick up all the kids around the area, drive them to school, go to school, pick up all the kids at the end of the day, drive them all home again, back to the farm, back to more chores. Wow. Before he could have dinner. Was a hard worker. He was a hard worker. Yeah. So what this Namby Pamby, <coughs> excuse me, long-haired musical, you know, blah blah blah, hippie stuff. Didn't he? He he didn't like it at first. Yeah. My mother it was English. They met. They met after World War II, in England, and uh, or Germany. I don't know where were they. Romania. Okay. And uh, they he brought her back, and they got married, but my mother used to say to my father, what is the big deal about the long hair? Like the Beatles, you know, when I was growing up, all the boys had hair like that. Yeah. In England, long hair has always been sort of normal. Right. You know, not sort of normal, normal, you know. And uh, so she was a buffer between me and him for many years. Was she? Eventually, he, uh, he got into it and helped me build an amp and stuff like that, so... When I got my first guitar, like I said, the crappy Silvertone, yeah. for Christmas or my birthday, I said, I want a pickup. Oh, okay. And and my father should have figured it out. My mother didn't know. Okay, but it was 15 bucks or some DeArmond thing that slides up under there. Yeah. And then once I got the pickup, I said, okay, I need an amplifier to play it through. Ah, <laughs> aha. We didn't know that part. Right. You didn't say anything about the amp. My father, we had one of those big, long, 10-foot, you know, uh, when they first came out, the big, long console. Oh, yeah. Stereo yeah. things with five speakers in each Oh, yeah, yeah sure. I remember those, sure. 
lift up to live in the, in the middle, the turntable, the radio, everything was all in there. Uh, we had one of those too. They, it had an auxiliary input on the back. And my father went in and rewired it so I could listen to the radio or the turntable and plug my guitar into the auxiliary and bring it up and mix it in with the record or with the radio so I could play along with it and learn the music off the radio. So my first amp was a 10-foot-long console stereo. The, the, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Which, and, and I know in the back of his mind the whole time he was thinking, hmm, I wonder if he's doing any damage to it, you know, <laughs> which all of a sudden he's out there. He went down to the local electronics store. He bought a couple of small sort of ra- uh, record player tube amplifiers, Yeah. Uh, put a 10 and a 12-inch speaker in it, and built it in, and it was stereo. One of them powered one speaker, one powered the other. I could plug into it, and I could adjust each speaker and amplifier level separately. Yeah. And all the kids, all the guys in the band back in those days were using Silvertone Sears amps. And How much it, would they have cost? Do you remember? Oh, they were under $100, you know, yeah. they're $39, 49 $59, you know. And, uh, but the guys really, um, were kind of jealous of my homemade amp because it sounded better than theirs. <laughs> than the Sears one, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you ever thanked your parents publicly or? Yes. Just, have you? Yeah. Do you remember where? Because, I mean, your story, I think, is, is an out of the box story. Most well, they, of us grew up and our parents were not supportive of what we had to do. When I was playing with James Cotton and when I was playing with Johnny Winter, and then later with Jeff Healy, they came out to shows. And we'd set the chairs up on the stage on one side so they could sit on my side of the stage and watch on the, from the stage. And uh, I, I thanked them when they were there at all those concerts. You know, What was that like to have them watching you? It was great. It must have been. This one gig we did in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. At a place that was an old mill, you know, with the big smokestacks and all that stuff. It was a concert venue, a big outdoor concert venue. Played there with Jeff Healy, and my whole family was there. Aunts, uncles, you know, uh, my brothers and sis- brother and sister, my parents. They were all on the side of the stage. My father had just gotten this new video camera. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm standing on stage playing, and all of a sudden I look off to my right, and he's right standing next to me on stage. Videoing you. Videoing me. <laughs> That's and, my son. <laughs> and then he's walking across the stage and videoing the drummer. Like, Is he? He's on stage with us. And a security guy comes out to grab him, and the drummer waved at him and said, "Just leave him alone. Leave him alone." That's a cool story. So he, and, I mean, and you know, he was on stage. He was standing over by the drummer. He's standing over in front of Jeff. You know, like just shooting. You know, and they they probably appreciated having him there, like Jeff Healy and the other guys. Oh right? yeah, they did. I think people generally like if your parents come out and support you, they're gonna go way to go, Pat. That's wonderful, right? Well, when they came to see me with James Cotton, when they came to see me with Johnny Winter, when they came to see me with Jeff Healy, um, they always came on the tour bus after. Did they? And hung out on the tour bus with everybody. Did when, they recognize what an opportunity that was? Oh sure, they must have. Eh? They they loved it. You know, all access. You know. Hang out with the band, go on the tour bus, you know. Was Johnny Winters talkative? Yeah, oh, yeah. He was? Yeah. Because you can never tell that from his interviews. You can't tell. He was, when he wasn't on stage, he was a bit introverted. 
Right. A little shy. When he was on stage, he certainly wasn't. He came to life. No. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But uh, no, Johnny was another best friend of mine. He was? I lived with him. I lived with Edgar for one winter. Yeah. For one winter. Uh, <laughs> it's a good one. I had rented a, a house up in New Haven, Connecticut on the beach, not realizing it was a summer cottage. No heat. Dead of winter, New Haven, Connecticut? Yes, it's cold. I was staying with Johnny at his apartment um, in Manhattan, in New York, for a while. And this all got started one night. And Edgar was living in a really nice house in Westport, Connecticut. Right. He called Johnny one weekend and said, uh, why don't you guys... Oh, I know what it was. Johnny and Edgar and I went to an ELO uh, party at Regine's in New York after they played at Madison Square Gardens. Yeah. Funny story there. Me and Johnny arrived first, and the paparazzi were going crazy and everything. And then Edgar arrived later. And the next issue of Cream Magazine, who's who, who's doing what, there's a picture of me and Johnny coming in. Yeah. Johnny and Edgar Winter arriving at the ELO party. No picture of Edgar. In fact, That's I, great. we asked Edgar, you know, you know, when you came in, you know, was there a big kerfuffle? Were they shooting? He, he said, goes, no. Because no. nope. <laughs> you'd come in already, right? He thought, they thought Edgar was there already. Yeah. Now, here it is. Johnny with long, you know, white hair. Yeah. yeah. And me with long, flaming red hair. Right. I right. had really super, super red hair. Well, where'd you get the red hair from? Like uh, your, your your grandfather? Mother and father. Did they have red hair as well? Both. Yeah. Did, did kids make fun of you as uh, when you were little? Oh, carrot top. Carrot brick, top, right? Brick, brick top. And do you have a temper? Yeah. Because they say that redheads have a temper. Yeah. But you lose it when you get older, right? Yeah. Do you, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> Just don't cross the line. Yeah. So did, did that bother those boys at all? Did they care about the media, how they responded? Like this this story that well, you Well, there was always so much. Of there was so much, stuff right? Stuff like that, to, you know, and, uh, less didn't bother them. Yeah. Not at all, no. When you say he was your best friend, what made him your best friend? Like what, what sort of guy was he? Johnny? Yeah, Johnny, yeah. Well, Johnny, you know, um, when I met him, I was playing with a band called Thunderhead in New Orleans. You started Thunderhead? Yeah, I yeah. was one of the co- one of the founders, yeah, co-founder. And um, the other guys in the band knew Johnny already. And Johnny, um, this is around 73-ish. Johnny checked himself into a place called River Oaks Hospital for nine months, signed a piece of paper that said, don't let me out until I'm clean because he was on heroin and stuff. Yeah. And uh, these guys go visit him and stuff. And when he when he got passes out on weekends before they let him out totally, he would come and stay at, at, at our house where the band was living and go out on gigs with us. And at the end of the night, come out for the encore and do like a half a set. And at this point, everybody was like, it was like, hey, Edgar, where's your brother? <laughs> oh, you is know, that right? From the Roadwork album. Yeah. And, uh, and then he came out and played with them on that album. Oh, wow. But uh, he'd come out at the end of the night and play a bunch of songs with us. And all, all of a sudden, you know, and we filled the place. Thunderhead was a big band down there. And all of a sudden, People look up on stage, Johnny Winter's on stage with us. Yeah. And they went completely nuts. Yeah, yeah. You know, because everybody, no, nobody knew where he was. You know, he just kind of disappeared for nine months, you know. And when he was at his biggest, doing 
stadiums and you know yeah he was huge he's huge huge yeah my mother uh, my parents were religious jews you know and and i always loved <clears throat> rock and roll and at somewhere in the early 70s i had a picture up on my wall of i think it was either edgar winter john i think it was edgar and he wasn't wearing a shirt <clears throat> and his hair was blowing behind him and my mother walks in she could have sworn it was a woman when i got hell for that that right? sounds like the cover of the only come out at night that's very possible. It was a cover of an album. That's and he right. had all this jewelry on. Correct. And Correct. And my mom, my mom yeah. took a fit over that, but I tried to explain. Yeah, everybody wanted to know what the heck was going on yeah, yeah. with that album cover. Yeah. It was just a, the photographer he was working with. I said, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try it. And, of course, I'm sure the record company probably picked it. Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm sure that was the case. So, so, could, could. so what I was saying is I was living with Johnny. We went to the ZLO thing. <clears throat> And then a few weeks later, Edgar called up and said, hey, Johnny, why don't you come down, come up to Westport, hang out for the weekend? And he said, well, my guitar player, Pat's living here with me. Edgar said, bring him. Yeah. You know? So we went and stayed for two or three days. And while we were there, Edgar explained, Edgar and I got along great. Did you? Yeah, I love him to death. He's another great friend of mine. And uh, he said, Johnny told him, He's living with me right now because the summer cottage he rented is frozen over. And, right. And Edgar said, I got four bedrooms here. Come and live here. Right. So I moved in with Edgar and I lived there for the whole winter. <laughs> and uh, how was that? It was great. Was it? Yeah. We shoot pool at night. He used to beat me at pool even though he was legally blind. Was a snooker? No, just uh, eight ball. Eight ball. Yeah. How did he beat you? Combination shots, shops off the rail. I mean, I I was a good pool player when I lived in New Orleans. Yeah. I used to take a table and keep it all night. Did you have your own pool queue? Yeah. Yeah, I had one too. Yeah. Yeah. My next door neighbor in Virginia Beach, uh, his father was a a professional pool player. And he had his garage made to a a $10,000 pool table. Yeah, those beautiful ones. Yeah. He taught me to play. Oh, so you must have been good. I was real good. Could you do those fancy shots where the ball goes around the other ball? Uh, no. And you rip the felt? Once in a while. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. It might be a bizarre question, but you were close with Johnny Winters, close with Edgar Winters. You were close with Jeff Healy, all individuals who had visually impaired. Yeah. Well, what did you take out of that? Like, what did you learn from that? Did well, you I look them in the eyes when you talked to them? Well, yeah, they could see. Well, they but could see somewhat. I right? asked Johnny one day, you know, what? Oh, 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 Describe to me when wh- how your vision is. Right. What do you see? Right. And he said, well, if you cross your eyes and make well, uh, and blur your eyes as much as you possibly can, that's what I see. Oh, really? Yeah, they were both, they were, they were blind at birth, both of them. Well, what, Legally what, blind. What did you say to that? Like, what was the conversation after that? It, it never seemed to hinder either one of them. You know, they were, um, Johnny was a little bit, more of an introvert, but Edgar was a total extrovert. He was. <clears throat> yeah. He never got into the drugs and all that stuff. The only thing we would do at night was drink copious amounts of Budweiser while we shot pool. You still like Bud? <laughs> no. Do you drink beer at all? Yeah. Which beer do you drink? I have three favorites. Not necessarily in order. Molson Dry. Yeah. Because it's strong. Uh, Grolsch and Keith. Uh, where are they from? Grolsch is Bavaria, I think, and uh, Keys is from 
down east. Were you involved in the drug scene, in the drinking scene? Was that a big part of your growing up years? Um, yeah. Was it? Well, yeah, I mean. Do you regret that at all? I graduated in 1970. Yeah, so and, uh, you were in the thick of it. You know, that's, you know, 69, 70, 67 up through 70, 71 was the days of experimentation. Right, big time. I tried LSD two or three times. I got dosed a couple times, which really sucked, but. Dosed is when what? Someone puts Somebody it sneaks it on you. What what happened? Do you remember what happened? Well, all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, the world is different. It kicks in and everything's crazy and, you know, and you know you didn't take anything and it's it, it's scary. Did you like LSD, though, when you no. took it? You did not. Uh, I took it a couple of times. You know, it was okay. Yeah. I have always been one of these people, even if I'm drinking with people or whatever, I don't like to get past a line where I don't know where I am, what I'm doing, and can't right. get myself home. Right. I don't like that. I don't like being out of control. Right. Not a control freak. <laughs> but you don't want to be out but of I control. I don't want to be out of control. Well, that makes total sense. So, uh, you know, I, I, I tried... Uh, psilocybin and I tried uh, mushrooms I tried uh, you know all the different psychedelic stuff and uh, mushrooms weren't bad and, and the, the cactus wasn't bad you know because they're not anywhere near as out there as LSD right right but um, people ask me if I ever you know tried heroin well, first of all I'm needle phobic are you? And if I was in a room with anybody that was going to shoot up, if they're at my house, I told them to go in another room. Yeah. If I was at their house, I left the room. And because uh, I'm, I'm a lot better now, I can get a blood test without like fainting. But, well, what happened in your early years? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you what it was. I had a dentist who had a dental assistant when I was a kid. When they give you those shots in your gums. Right. Of course, back then, the needles were like three times bigger than they are now. Yeah, it was like a Frankenstein movie. She would stab you in the gums. <laughs> I, know. I know. And then start pushing this stuff. And these yeah. days, they swab you, and they put this tiny little needle in slowly while they're pushing it in. Yeah, they're somewhat humane. Nothing. It's really humane now. But back then, and that made me phobic for everything. Did it? Blood tests, shots, anything. That, like, Just, Did you ever freak out in the dentist chair? Not in a dentist chair. Um, it was so bad that for maybe a, a decade or so after all that, um, if I had to have a filling, yeah, I wouldn't let them. Yeah, no, I understand that. I wouldn't let them deaden me. I just take it, take the pain. And it hurt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not as much as I thought it would. When we were growing up, I grew up in Kitchener, which is little Berlin, and we had a, a dentist by the name of Doctor uh, Hamrick. Or Heimlich, or something. <laughs> <laughs> for oh, some the, bizarre oh, reason, the old Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> exactly, he's the guy in your mouth. He's the maneuver. <laughs> Anyways, we had like ten or twelve cavities at a time. <clears throat> did you have a lot of cavities when you were a kid? I did. Why? Why is that? We had a ton of cavities because uh, you, you didn't brush your teeth as much as you. Or should. maybe there's no fluoride or something. Well, I don't was, know. There was did you like chocolate bars? Yeah. What, what was your favorite? Oh God. All of them. I know. Me too. There's not, a, <laughs> there's not a chocolate bar I don't like. Like an O'Henry, Crispy Crunch, the whole thing, right? I'm not as much into chocolate bars that have stuff in them. Oh, just like nuts just, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And plus, down in the States, you had really good stuff. Like Babe Ruth. That was an awesome oh, chocolate. Yeah. Wasn't that a great chocolate oh, bar? Yeah, Babe Ruth. Loved Babe Ruth. So we'd go to the dentist. We'd have 10 or 12 cavities. And for some reason, he wasn't into uh, freezing our gums. Yeah. So we'd walk out of there like six or seven years old. It was traumatic you know so 
So anyway, I yes, I tried all the different drugs in the in the seventies. Went through the coke phase, you know. Um, never really bought much because there was always somebody it was always backstage around. with a with a mountain of cocaine. So yeah, um, I I liked really liked hash, still do, but can't find any hash anymore. Right. Um, I got tired of pot many years ago, and and like I was saying earlier, now it's so strong. You know, if if I do. You know, say okay at a, at a party. Somebody passes me a joint. After I've taken two tokes, I'm out of my mind. You are. That's right. It's strong stuff it's, nowadays. It's, way, it's too strong. It really is. I, I just have such a low tolerance for it. Everything. So I don't really. The only thing I really do anymore after all those years of all the different stuff is have a few beers here and there. You know. Right. And you can enjoy yourself, right? And the heroin thing, I snorted it once and I smoked it once. And how was that? I didn't like. You didn't like it. Yeah. Same reason I stopped, didn't never did LSD anymore, and never did heroin again. Were you high on stage when you played guitar? Uh, back in the seventies, pretty much. And did that help your playing, or did it, did it detract? I don't know. You don't know, yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. Everybody loved what I was doing, you know. I, I think maybe I, I was used, had, play guitar, stoned, enough, that I guess I got good at it, stoned. You know, right. But I, I don't do it anymore. I, you know, I, I don't like I'll have a few beers while I'm playing now. David Crosby said that he wrote most of his early music when he was stoned. Yep. But he said he regretted it. Really? Yeah. He said he regretted. He wished he would have been more clear headed and he wrote great music. Right. Does he think it would be greater if he had been? Uh, I'm assuming straight? that's what he was thinking. And he Sounds was also like thinking that he wanted to be more <clears throat> present. You know what I mean? So. That was an interesting, interesting point that he made. So, so you're you're on stage with with Johnny and Edgar and and some of the greats. How many people would you have played in front of? What would be the max? The biggest show I ever did was with Jeff Healy. Where was that? Denmark. They have this show. I think that's where it was. It it was outdoor festival that they had every year. Yeah, it was built around this huge ancient tree that was in the middle of the stage oh. outdoors behind us and it's a big festival to have every year and I think there was many hundreds of thousands of people hundreds of thousands hundreds of thousands yeah so so when you I look played, out played it at one of the Atlanta pop festivals and how many people would have been there hundreds of thousands so so Pat when you look out like I'm a public speaker right and I've spoken in front of a thousand people. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, and I'm looking around. It's a bit overwhelming for me, right? What do you see <clears throat> when you see a hundred thousand people? When I'm in a bar that holds forty people or fifty people, yeah, and a lot, I know a lot of them, and I can see all their faces. I get nervous. Right. Right. When I'm on stage in front of ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred thousand people, it's just a sea of people. The only ones you can see are up front close to the stage the rest of it is like looking out at the ocean like the waves distant waves yeah i mean you know it's people but to me it's it's way more impersonal than playing for 40 people at grossman's downtown you know do you get nervous though in front of all those people very seldom i might as well be sitting in my living room playing really yeah and when the roar goes up at the end of the song what what happens inside of you? Oh, you get a, a rush, pardon the pun. Like huge, right? Oh, yeah. 
Pardon the pun. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, I forget who this was, Bonnie Raitt, maybe. Oh, Bonnie, yeah. Do you know her? I met her once. Did you play with her? No. Yeah, I love her. Would love to, but. Yeah, honestly. So she said that. So uh, if you're listening, Bonnie. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she listens to my podcast. Um, but I, I believe it was her who said that uh, it's better than sex. Yes. Well, what did she mean by that? It can be. Maybe she's had a lot of bad sex. I That's don't know. possible, too. <laughs> but on the flip side, what what would she have meant by that? It's, um, I'd say it rivals. Yeah. In, in some ways. Not always. But in some ways, it I mean, you get a gig that really sucks, you know. So you're not bringing much home with you out of that one. But um, I love to I love to play. I mean, I don't care if it's ten people or ten thousand people. You know, I right. I just love playing. You know, and I'm not that generally most of the time not that conscious of the people that are out there. I get up there yeah. and I play, and I do my thing. And I guess my basic thought on it is, you know. Yes, I want to, them to like it. I'm playing for the, the audience. I hope they like it. But I'm liking it. I'm enjoying it. I, if I can't please myself, then I can't please them. So it's interesting. Well, I'm watching Crossroads. That's a big <clears throat> thing for me. I love Eric Clapton's 2007, 2010. Hmm. Did you ever play at Crossroads? No. Jeff did. Jeff, which one did he play at? I don't know. Oh, okay. So... I look at the musicians on stage and I see essentially that there's an incredible interaction between them. Yes. Right? So you'll have, let's say, Johnny Winters with Derek Trucks. Yeah. Um, just a whole, they have a whole gamut of, of people up there like, uh, what's it, Robert Cray? Yeah. Who I love. And um, and they're, they're, it, 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 they're like buddies up there. Mm -hmm. There's a eye contact that they make with one another. And the, the crowd, as you were saying, is almost like incidental. Yeah, uh, um, you're right you know, in a way because um, I know when I've been playing the big game, <clears throat> excuse me, the big shows with the big name people and stuff like that, and, and pretty much any band I've ever played with, I'm on stage. I'm looking at them mostly. Yeah, yeah. We're playing off each other. We're enjoying playing together, and if. Those people over there are enjoying it great. But like I said, you have to please yourself first. Right. I, I don't know if that sounds like it's selfish. No, no I don't not. think so. No, it makes total but sense. if you're not having fun, then you're not going to relate that fun to them. If you're having a lot of fun yeah, and you guys are really gelling and really playing together and looking at each other and going, whoa, look at, that's great. Yeah. you know, um, They sense that. You yes. don't necessarily have to be looking at them. And I think when you're in a, an audience that's that huge, you're not expecting the musicians on stage to be looking at you. Right. There's too many people. Right. I mean, you can, you know, I'm, of course, I look out in the crowd. If there's anybody up close that's like, hey, you know, like, hey, hey, back. You, you, you will know? do that? Oh, yeah. How long have you been married? Um, We're not married, but we've been together since, well, over a decade. Over a decade. Yeah. What's your What's your uh, partner's name? Patsy. Patsy. What What's she like? Wonderful. Is she? Like how so? She's a very, really, really nice. Super, super smart. Uh, she is an incredible cook. Yeah. She's a chef, baker. You know, she's uh, 
really supportive of me. You know, she is. Yeah, she'll. If I haven't played it on a while, she says you need to you need to get out and play. Yeah. You know, because she knows how much I love it. And right. even if I if I haven't played for a little while, even if I go out and do one really fun gig, come back, that settles me down for a while. You know. I imagine so. Yeah. 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 And and how did you guys meet? Your wife, your partner, and you. How did you meet? On a bar stool. Did you? Yeah. In a bar. Yeah. There's a, I won't say the name of the bar. I don't go there anymore. Um, uh, they had a, a stool for me and a plaque on the bar. And I said, this, you know, this is Pat Rush's seat. Really? And he shouldn't have said this, but it said, if I come in, move. <laughs> Did so, that ever happen? So I came in one night. It was like someone sitting pe- there? Yeah, and usually I just sit next to them, or but usually they go, "Oh, this, I'm in your seat. Sorry, get up." Yeah, everybody knew me there. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, I walked in one night, and Patsy was sitting there, so I sat down next to her, and everybody had been telling her about me, and we both had really long hair, and you know, blah blah blah, and she, she turned to me and said. Are you Pat Rush? I said, yeah. She said, oh, I'm in your seat. I said, no, no, you you stay. You sit there. I'll just sit next to you. And we we were friends for a really, really long Is time. Is that because you had a certain feeling about her? I knew nothing about her at that point. You just wanted to be gracious to an individual. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and she's a good-looking girl, too, you know. That doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt at all. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. She, she Does that happen to you a lot, by the way, after gigs? Do you expect that to happen? I always figure that musicians are just. Uh, I know I do this after after a gig. If I'm at a club or or a bar or what have you, like I will really uh, look for the players and tell them what an incredible job they did. If they did, always, always, right? Yeah, men, women. What do you say? Like, what do you? Musicians, what's your response? Uh, I don't have a standard one, but but what what might you well, say? I, I say thank you. That's really nice to hear. And you're gracious you know, about I, it. I appreciate that. I, what if you had a really like shit show? Would you still say thank you? Well, yeah, you don't want to let on to them that you had a shit yeah, show. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, part of the the object is you know, and I say a lot of times a band can have a bad show or you can have a bad night, make some mistakes or not play the greatest, and people still come and go, "Oh God, you were so amazing," you know, yeah, stuff. Like, and I'm not going to turn around and go, "No, I wasn't. I, you know, I hit a bad right. note and blah blah song." You know, <laughs> right, right. You no, know, it's. And you know, part of the part of the deal is that you never have a bad enough night that the audience can notice it. It's very important. That's your own personal deal. Yes. So, in other words, you would say to yourself, "Pat, get up there, do your very best." You can feel like hell. Okay. You could be sick. You could be tired. You could be, you know, whatever. And you don't, you don't want to let on to the audience, right? Right. Get up there. Show must go on. I know that's a cliche, but I believe that. And generally, has that happened? Like, has there ever been a time where the show in your mind that you did just was so dismal, you felt like walking off? Or generally, has it gone? A few times here and there, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. It happens to everybody. It happens to me as a speaker. Oh, yeah? Yeah, sure. Of course it does. Blah, 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 yeah, blah, you blah, figure, blah. what am I saying? <laughs> exactly. You know, what the hell am I saying here, you right? See, my next question is, blah, 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 yeah, blah, right. blah. Right, right. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. But you do it 100%. Like, yeah. you just stay up there and you say, listen, just get through this, you know. Comedians will say, I've been listening to a lot of WTF, Mark Marin, and uh, it's one of the best 
podcasts in the world. And he talks about going up on stage and just completely bombing, completely not rising to the comedic level that he wants. People aren't laughing and you're dying up there. Oh, listen, I have so much respect for comedians. Yeah, me too. It's a job I can never do. Right. I thought about it at one time. I can be a funny guy. Yeah. But, oh, God, you know, first of all, when you're up there with a band, it's like, same reason I, I don't do solo gigs. Yeah. I'm an electric guitar player. Right. I play acoustic and I play it in the studio on records and things like that. But to get up with just an acoustic guitar and a microphone and for me to sing and play by myself is one of the most terrifying things I is, can think is it? of. Yeah. It I, don't, is. I don't do it. I do duos occasionally, but even that, just two guys with two acoustic guitars up there, it's just scary as hell. Like, I need the drums, I need the bass, I need the, I need the band. Right, You know. right. And uh, to go on stage by yourself with nothing but a microphone in front of you? Lily just jumped on the table, folks. Hi, Lily. Lily's my cat. Are you good with animals? Yeah. Yeah, you seem to be. Hi, Lily. Maybe you're like a cat whisperer. You cannot walk there. I have a um, uh, one-year-old female black Labrador. Oh, do you? Named Poppy. Ooh, that must be sweet. She's. I love those dogs. So, um, what was Muddy Waters like? A gentleman. Was he? Oh, you want some more water? I think it's too far down in there for you to get it. It is. (laughs) Hi, little girl. Pat's falling in love with Lily. I love you. I'd offer you, I'd offer you to take her home, but I love her too much. Yeah, I know. Yeah. She's, she's so. Yeah, she's a lovely cat. She's trying so hard to get the water. I know. She's sweet, isn't she? I think she got it. Are you okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> I have Labrador hair in my mouth half the I know. time I anyway. Had, I had a German Shepherd. Once I had to take care of an Israeli politician, a dignitary. Oh, yeah. He had hair all over his back going into the next speech because he was sitting in my car. (laughs) And I'm sitting there debating, what the hell am I going to do here? And I didn't say a word. He went in with all that German Shepherd hair on his back. So so Muddy Waters, what was Muddy Waters like? Muddy was a gentleman. He he was absolutely great. If you want a good Muddy Waters story, I got it. Yeah, let's hear. Uh, I used to live in New Haven, Connecticut. And... Uh, there's a place called Toad's Place there. And Muddy, and I, I when they were doing the Hard Again and um, I'm Ready albums at Dan Hartman's Schoolhouse Studio in right. Westport, he, uh, <laughs> he, um, Johnny was producing and playing on it. It was um, James Cotton, Muddy, and Johnny. It was James, Muddy's, backup band <clears throat> and they uh, they um, you know recorded these two albums down there Johnny that's where we Johnny and I recorded um, White Hot and Blue album and we went down <laughs> we went down there uh, one day just to see what was going on you know I sat around and listened to them recording and playing and he introduced me to James and he introduced me to Muddy yes you know I spent 10 minutes around them and we talked and stuff and then that was that and then some months later six months later I don't know the Muddy Waters band was playing at Toad's Place 
in New Haven. I got invited down to see them, and I was sitting up in the sound booth with the sound guy and his girlfriend. Right. They are on stage. They, you know, they played two long sets. They finished the first set. They went down to the dressing room. So I made my way down to the dressing room, knocked on the door, and their tour manager opened the door, and I said, would you tell Muddy Pat Rush is here? And I heard, Pat Rush! <laughs> and he was across the room sitting down. He got up and walked over to the door, and, you know, he was getting old already there. Yes. And he came over to the door, shook my hand, patted me on the shoulder. He said, come on, man, you know. Yeah. We went over, I sat next to him in a chair, and between our chairs, there was a big ice bucket. Right. Uh, well, I guess it was wine. Was it wine he was drinking? Yeah. Bottle of wine in it. And he kept grabbing it, you know, having a swig and passing me the bottle. Treated me like he'd known me all his life. Right, right. That's what you said in an interview. Yeah. Like he was a friend of yours. Yes. And James Cotton as well. Well, James, that came, that came later. I ended up playing in his band. Uh, Muddy, they were going back on to do another set. I, I said, I'll, I'll see you guys later, you know. Uh, um, I was talking with Bob Margolin, his guitar player, and they went, I, I'll get out of your way. And I left, and I went back in my perch at the soundboard, and they get about getting close to the end of the set, second set, and all the season, ladies and gentlemen, I want to bring a good friend of mine up who plays with the Johnny Winter Band to play guitar with us. He never said anything. Uh, yeah, right, right. He just... He so threw you out there. I you know, had to make it through this huge crowd. I got there. Now, here I am. I walk up on the side of the stage. I'm walking. I, I reach Muddy first. Shake hand. Thanks, Muddy. I assume I'm playing Bob Margolin's Stratocaster. And I start to go by him, and Muddy grabs me. He goes, where are you going? And he pulls his Telecaster off. Oh, man. That famous really? old red Telecaster. Yeah, right. And he hands it to me. Now, you know, like, the action is like this. Yeah. But he knew I played slide. Right. Because there's no way I was going to play guitar on that. So just let's explain this to our listeners. So the action's very high. Very high. Very I mean, high. His guitar was very high. And therefore what? It was hard. It was very hard to play with fingers. Right. Almost impossible because you're pushing the strings down like half an inch. Why would he have done that, Pat? Because all he ever played on it was slide. It was playing slide, yeah. Yeah, he was, yeah. everybody got slide playing from Muddy. Yeah. But uh, so he put his guitar and I'm standing there and we do a tune and he's, you know, sitting there singing. Actually, I don't think he was sitting at that time. I don't think he was sitting yet. I think he was standing. And we did Mojo or something. Right. And then... He turns to me while we're still playing, and he says, uh, Pat, uh, I'm not feeling too good right now. I don't think I can do the encore. Would you do it for me? Really? <laughs> you should see your face, Pat. I'm <laughs> your mouth open. shock. Your jaws are unhinged. My chin's on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And he mojos off the stage. We finished the song, and Bob goes, so what? What are we going to do now? He wants me to do a song. He goes, do it. So I grabbed his guitar and his slide and went into, uh, was it Dust My Broom, I think? Right. You know, one of those three-chord uh, slide tunes that everybody knows. Yeah. 
and the, and the crowd went nuts. And the, the thing is, I lived there. Right. And everybody knew I played with Johnny Winter. And I had played with a lot of bands in that club. Like, yes. That was my bar. That was my local. It was bar. like your home. <laughs> I never paid to go in, you know. I almost never paid to drink in there. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so we did, I did the encore. And the place went nuts. Did they? And we finished the encore. And everyone went, you know, went crazy and then went, okay. And they left. Yeah, that's wild. Wild. Now. <laughs> Your mouth is still open. <laughs> here's the best part of the story. I mean, that if if not, if all of that isn't the best no, part No, that was the good. <laughs> I go down to the dressing room after. Everybody's there. And I thank Muddy and everything. He gave me a hug. You know, thanks. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for helping me out, you know. Was he a big guy? He was, dare I say it, big, large, robust. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Okay. Wasn't real tall. Okay. But he was pretty wide. Yes. I ain't too tall, (laughs) but I'm mighty wide. (laughs) B.B. King as well, eh? Oh, B.B. King was huge. Yeah. Near the end. Right? He was enormous. He had to sit down. He never, you know, he he could barely walk to the stage. Yeah. We played with him a bunch of times. So Was he nice? Jeff. He was great guy he was a nice guy yeah okay he could be a bit hard on his band you know yeah. he uh could be a little i don't know what the word is dominating i saw him hard on john mayer and i yeah. kind of i, I kind of th- like john mayer was giving him a lot of compliments and bb mm. king said stop it or i'm gonna walk on stage walk off stage yeah well, it's like he didn't want to hear the bullshit sort of you know which i get i get yeah so I go downstairs to the dressing room. I'm talking to Bob Margolin, Pine Top Kirkins, and all those guys. And he says, Willie Big Eye Smith was the drummer. And Bob says, do you have any idea what happened here tonight? And I said, no. What happened here tonight? He says, Muddy won't even let me touch that guitar. Really? He said, the only guy who touches that guitar is our roadie who takes it out, puts it on stage, and then puts it away for him. He he said, one time Eric Clapton sat in with us at a gig somewhere, and he wouldn't let Clapton use it. Oh, my God. Clapton can play slide. I get chills, man. (laughs) He said, Clapton came over to get the guitar, and he wouldn't give it to him. He says, no, Eric. <laughs> so so he came over and played Bob Mogollon Strat, right? yeah. which is what I thought I was going to be doing. Yeah, right, right. Like, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing because nobody told me they were going to do this. You know? yeah, it was all surprise. And I said, are you kidding? He goes, no. And all the guys are standing around, the bass player and everybody, and they're, they're all shaking their head with this incredulous look on their faces. They said, he won't let any of us touch it. He wouldn't even let Eric Clapton touch it. Now... We have to go back, and you have to remember that I met him at the studio with Johnny and James yes. for 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not like of, he was a bosom buddy. I told, Like I said, when I walked to the dressing room, he, Pat Rush, and he got up, came and got me at the door and took me back over and was, you know, handing me his, his bottle out of his ice bucket. So did you just figure he really had a good feeling about you? I guess so. It's the only thing I I can think of, you know. He had no other reason. He had he had no reason to like show off or 
Unless he was trying to piss the other guys in the band off. I don't know. You never know. I don't think so. Have you had that throughout your career? Like, do people like you? Pretty much. Yeah? Yeah. But uh, I've always, always made friends with people I played with. Well, like I said, when I met John, uh, James Cotton, a few months later or maybe a year later, I don't know, he was playing at the Pinecrest Country Club, and the opening band was Root Boy Slim. Root Boy Slim. So I went down to the show, and I'm standing again at the mixing console with the sound man watching Root Boy Slim. And next thing I know, I look next to me, and James is standing next to me. Yeah. And he's listening, you know. And I go, hey, oh, hi, James. And he looks over at me and goes, oh, hey, Pat. <laughs> You're Johnny Winter's guitar player, aren't so you? he said. I had just left Johnny. Yeah. Um, and... I said, no, I'm, I'm not playing with him now. And, and I said, but I could be your guitar. I was looking for a gig. You said that to him, right? I said, I could be your guitar player if yeah. you want. Yeah. And his eyes got big. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen James Cotton. but I've seen him. I mean, not not in person. Gets the big yeah. eyes. You know? Yeah. And he went, really? Can you can you go out on tour like soon? And I said, sure. I'm free. He goes, okay. Give me your phone number. Gave him my number. A couple of weeks later, he called me on the phone and said, "Okay, we're we're going out on a national tour in two weeks." Yeah, he said, "I'll send you plane tickets to Chicago, and then you go with us." That's great. And then I played with him for three years. So, so, so he met me for ten minutes. So, so what do you think, Pat? What do you think? You think you think they just have a good feeling about you? I guess. Like, I'll tell you something, okay? Neither, I, I neither, met I met you an hour. Ago. Neither one of them had ever seen me play. So they just kind of well look. You they, were in the Johnny. They knew I Winter. played with Johnny Winter, and they know Johnny has good musicians. That's pretty good credibility, it's right? A pretty there. good bet. Yeah, it's a pretty good bet. <clears throat> I mean, he was the greatest guitarist in the world, wasn't he? Well, or right up there, right? Right up there, yeah. But I've known you for like an hour, and I, I like you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I like you too. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, you're an easy guy to get along with. Yeah, yeah. Good. I know you too. You too. I think we're hitting it off here. So let me ask you something. So when you look back on the James Cotton story, on the Muddy Waters story, the Johnny Winter story, and we'll get to the Jeff Healy, Healy story in a second, like, do you see that as being your life? And do you see yourself as being blessed or as almost like, I still haven't wrapped my head around this. This is crazy, you know? Sometimes I, don't, I still haven't wrapped my head around it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do know I, I'm self-confident enough to know that I, I got good early. Yeah. You know, I was, like I said, my teacher stopped lessons and told my mother that I was way ahead of him in the books and on the lessons. And for me to teach her that, that he didn't, she didn't need to be paying him any money anymore. Said he's catching up to me already. You learned quickly. Yeah, and I was 13, and he was like 18. Yes. So I ended up, uh, I had my first major band, not, not major, local band when I was 15. Right, right. But ju just going back to what I was saying, um, the Ascots, they were called the Ascots. The Ascots. The Ascots, right? That's right. Just going back to what I was saying. And Robert was, Miles, the other guitar player in that yeah. band, was the one who sold me my first guitar. For $13. Oh, that's the guy. Yeah. That you had to, your mom loaned you. Yeah. 
but, but just going back, because I, I really want to know the answer to this question, because it really impacts upon how I think about myself, to be honest. I, I've had a pretty blessed life in many, many ways, and I've done some pretty cool stuff. And sometimes I see myself as being part of it, and sometimes it seems almost like a dream. Yeah. But, but, but then, like, the fact of the matter is that you play with Johnny Winters, and you played in front of a hundred or 200,000 people with Jeff Healy, and uh, you were buddies in some ways with Muddy Waters, the greatest blues guy ever. And here you are in Toronto, and you're going to leave here. You know, you grab a cab home. You have a bite with your wife. Like, on one hand, your life is so big. And then you go and you do real simple stuff, grab a coffee at coffee time or whatever. Like, do you see that disparity? Yeah, but I've, I've always made it a point, uh, what you were asking me earlier about, uh, do I feel blessed? Yes, I feel blessed. Yes. Always. I feel... I know I'm good, but I also know that there's uh, was definitely a certain amount of luck involved. Right. If I hadn't gone to the studio and met Muddy and James when I did, none of that would have happened. And that was all because of Johnny. Yes. Yes. Um, the, the reason I ended up playing with Johnny is he was producing Thunderhead. Um, the first album, Edgar came down and played piano and stuff on it. And... Johnny said to me and Bobby Torello, the drummer, Bobby T, if for some reason the band ever breaks up, I want to start a band with you two. Right. So a year or so later it did. And we had, we had moved from New Orleans up to uh, Connecticut. So I was in the area and everybody else sort of, uh, the singer went back to Patterson, New Jersey, where he was from. Bobby T was from New Haven. The other guys were from Mississippi. They went, back after the band you know, dissolved and I stayed up there with Bobby and, and we played with Michael Bolton yes I read that he used to be Bolotin <laughs> is that what they call his him? real name was B-O-L-O-T-I-N but after his first couple of RCA records or whatever they took the O out of the middle and, and his original music was kind of good music no the, the stuff he was doing when I was playing with him was, was like rock it was rock yeah yeah Good rock, too. It was a good rock. Then he yeah. changed later on, right? More ballads and things like that. So I stayed up stayed up north, uh, talked to Johnny, and he said such and such time down the line, he was going to let the band he had go and start a band with me and Bobby. And he did. As a band member, did you always expect things like that would happen, or do you think it would last forever? Well, Thunderhead was a great band. Was it? Killer band. I, was I, it? I wish it had kept going. You do, huh? Yeah. What was so great about it? Double guitar band, yeah. two great guitar players, hot double bass drum drummer, great bass player, great singer, yeah. played electric flute, you know. We wrote almost all of the music we played, we wrote, and people down south loved it. Did they? It was sort of a combination of... British and Southern rock. Okay. Heavier, like the British stuff, but uh, with that Southern double guitar stuff going on. The Allman Brothers had a double guitar as well, Yeah, yeah. I love the Allman Brothers. I also do. I had... uh, I missed it by that much twice. I always wanted to play with them. And? Uh, Well, the first time Dwayne died, um, I had 
played with them and you know jammed with them and stuff like that. I knew them all. Greg knew me and I talked to Greg about it a little while after Dwayne died and said, "What are you going to do? You're going to get another guitarist." Me, please, yeah. you know. And he said, "No, we're going to get a, a keyboard player huh. and not go two guitars." That was partly because I don't think they really felt like they could replace Dwayne, and partly because Dickie Betts kind of seemed like he wanted to be the guy. The guy, yeah. Yeah. And he was a good the guy. Yeah, he's a great guitarist. Yeah, Dickie Betts. He played your guitar, didn't he? He played the 52. it. 52? Yeah, he played it, yeah. When these people pass away, what happens to you? Like, How do you deal with Johnny's death, Jeff's death? Um, I'm still dealing with it. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. There, I have days, you know. I'm going to cry now. Yeah, now I have tears in my eyes. Can I, or should I leave it or what? Do you want me to leave no, it? No, no, it's okay. Like, I'm going to have the, a smoke. These guys were, 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 were alive, but they were more than alive. They were interacting with you. They were brothers, right? Like when you're up there with with Jeff Healy, and I want to take this interview into the Jeff Healy stuff. There, there, there's, there's a presence that happens on stage. I've watched you guys. You know, I was down at at Healy's, and I and I've watched you on YouTube. And it's, I don't know, it's it's like a family when it clicks. So all of a sudden, this huge guy in your life, whom you you love, Jeff, you oh, loved yeah. him. I did, and, it, and I then do. he passes I still away. Do. Right. I saw from your post on Facebook, he's 41, he passes away. And I'll tell you, it touched me, and I had only met him a few times, but he was such an icon. I think when icons do die, people are touched by it. But here he was actually your friend, someone whom you loved, right? We were really close, yeah. You guys were really close. Yeah. Were you with him when he died? No. But you were at the funeral? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, I knew he was in the hospital. I knew he was pretty sick. Yeah. Um, I didn't go to visit. How come? Because I wanted to remember him the, the way he was. Was he okay with that? Did I he didn't, know? Yeah. We talked about that long before it happened. Yeah. So that, I, you know, I, it's just like I've been to funerals, but I've never been to an open casket funeral. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> nor would I. Um, I didn't, want to see him like just demolished in that hospital room bed I didn't yeah. want to see that yes I wanted to remember him before that yeah I get that I get that it would have been too tough well what about when Johnny Winter dies died well okay another good story a couple of months before he died yeah he played it was it Violet's venue, no, Peter's play players or whatever, up near Barry. And I had been talking to him, and he was coming to town. I said, "I'll come up and see you, but I'll bring." Um, I have a, a '63 Firebird Gibson Firebird that he gave me years ago, mm -hmm. one of his. Mm -hmm. Still have it, and I'll bring the old Firebird up and sit in and play with him. He said, "Do it," you know. So I went up there. Yeah, a friend of mine drove me up. And I ended up playing with him on stage with him and Paul Nelson, the other guitarist. Right. Paul's a great guy, too. And I uh, had a wonderful night. Did Play, you? Hung out with him on his, his, uh, in his motorhome after stuff. And I got him to sign 
a document that had pictures of the Firebird and the serial number and the story of him giving it to me and blah, 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 blah. And he signed it and his manager co-signed it right. just so I had provenance for the guitar. That's very cool. And uh, a couple months later, he died Yeah, over in Europe. And his first two gigs when he came back from Europe was supposed to be in, uh, one was in Quebec and one was in uh, near Kingston somewhere. And the promoters all of a sudden, they're on the phone with me going, we want it. We don't want to cancel the gigs. Will you come and play them? So I did. How was that? It was wonderful. Was it? We had a bunch of guitar players. It was a tribute, you know. Who else was playing? And I brought Johnny's Firebird. Oh, God. Um, Would Mike McDonald have played in some David Gogo, Rick Fines. Oh, what's, what's the young guy that he's... That, Sort of got discovered at Healy's. The protege? The young kid. He's uh, playing with... Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I just read about him, too. Anyways, yeah. Jimmy Boskill. Right. Wow. And uh, a whole bunch of bands. Yeah. And we had a one rhythm section. Everybody played with him. And it, it was it was wild because, you know, I hadn't played with him since the 70s, you know. Yes. And then all of a sudden, he dies and promoters are calling me up to come and play the gigs. Yeah. It's like I never left them. Yeah. You know. So so do you memorialize them in your own way? Well, I've got the Firebird. <laughs> Excuse you have, me. You have the guitar. Yeah. That Johnny gave me. And I have three guitars that Jeff gave me. What kind of guitars are they? Uh, one's a Jimmy, uh, Robert Johnson Acoustic. That Valley Arts built decades ago. They gave it to him, and then on our way back home on the tour bus, uh, we were unloading him at his house. And I said, "Oh, the the uh, Robert Johnson guitar is in the back." And he goes, "Do you like it?" Really? And I see. I says, "Keep it." He did, eh? Keep it. So I did. I've got one of his old original black Squire guitars. That the neck went bad on, but it's since come back. Is that a Korean made? Japanese, I think. Or Japanese? Yeah. There's also a Mexican make, right? Might be a Korean. Yeah. It's in the corner of my bedroom by, by the window next to my bed. Yeah. That's where it stays. But what was he like, Jeff Healy? What sort of person was he? Very kind, very giving. Funny as hell. He was. One of the most fearless people I've ever met. You were saying you called him brave in, in some my life. You called him brave. Sighted or not. We go, we'd be in Europe somewhere. He wanted to go out and jam. Nobody else was up to it. He'd go get a cab and go himself. He'd go by himself all the time. Out. And I remember our first tour of Europe, we're on the way over, we're sitting together on the plane, and he says, okay, Pat, first thing i got to tell you is don't eat any of the food. Right. I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's all terrible, it's all bad. It's, you know, it's, it's the worst food ever, you know. He said, but you stick with me because I know where to eat. <laughs> do you know where that was? <laughs> where? Burger King or McDonald's. <laughs> Mostly McDonald's. We get 
Oh, the first stop was in Amsterdam. We checked into the to the uh, American hotel there. And he said, he called me up in my room. He said, uh, I'm hungry. You want to go eat? And I said, sure. He said, meet me in the lobby. So I met him in the lobby, grabbed my arm, led me down the steps, down the street, around the corner, three or four blocks away, straight to a McDonald's. What did he order, do you know? Well, this is what's funny. Yeah. It was their sort of 4th of July. Yeah. Place, everything was packed. The, the streets were packed. It's like you know, Mardi Gras and, and New Year's Eve combined. So we get in the front door. We go up to the counter. He says, I'll have a hamburger royal with cheese. You know, like a, what was that movie? Which movie? I can't think of it. Anyway, and she says, I'm sorry, sir, we we have no hamburgers. They had run out. Didn't want to, I wouldn't want to have been the manager of that store. Yeah, they ran out. On their Independence Day, (laughs) running out of hamburgers. Yeah, that's kind of weird. He said, but do we do have the fish? And he goes, no, no, no. And he said, okay, Pat, grab my arms, take me back out the way we came. All right, back out the front door. Pulls me to the right. We go around the corner. We go about two or three blocks straight to a Burger King. <laughs> he knew where it was. And they had hamburgers there. That's pretty cool. Oh, we are in Oslo. He did the same thing. He said, let's, uh, let's go eat, okay. And he took me... Straight to a McDonald's. You know, Pat, I saw a video of him, um, some show, and he took us on a tour of his uh, room that housed his 35,000 records. records. And the person who was interviewing him said, well, do you have this and this record? He goes, I do. And he would walk right over to where it was on a particular shelf. Well, he had had them all in sort of parallel shelves, not Mm -hmm. vertical. So they were just like records going back. Right. He did the same thing with me. First time I was ever over there, um, he said, I said, uh, have you got such and such? He goes, yeah. And he goes over to a certain stack and he goes back and he pulls the record out of the sleeve. Oh, oh no, none of them were in sleeves. They were all out. Right. He picks the record up and he feels the edge, the grooves, puts it back, goes back a couple more, pulls one out, feels the grooves. Oh. I'm not kidding you. Really? Here it is. Goes and puts it on, and it was that record. Wow. I said, how do you do that? He says, I, I can feel, he can feel the grooves and tell the music. Wow. And when we were on the tour, on tour, on the road, yeah. he used to call me up and say, his record collector, record store in town, says he's got some stuff for me to see. You want to go with me? So I always went with him. Yeah. Guy would take us in the back, the forbidden zone, you know, and he'd say, on this shelf here. So he'd sit down on a chair. I'd sit down on a chair. <clears throat> and he'd go through, and he'd pull out a sleeve, and he'd feel the label because they're raised, right? They're embossed. He'd feel the label, and he'd go, um, oh, this is Atlantic, or whatever it was, and he was always right. Wow. And he'd hand me the record, he said, what's on the what's on the flip side, or, or what's on the A side, or whatever? And I would go, blah, 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 blah. And so I started playing a game called Stump the Jeff. <laughs> yes. I made it up. Yeah. We 
it's just, a good one. Just me and him played it yeah. when we went to the record stores. And I'd say, blah, 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 blah. And then I'd say, okay, what's on the flip side? Blah, 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 blah. And he was always right. I never stumped him. He would sit there and he'd go, uh, does it have a year on it? I said, yeah, 1932, you know, whatever. And he'd go, okay. That release, that would be the third take. <laughs> and uh, John blah, blah, blah was on trumpet and so-and-so and so was on the drums and so-and-so and so was on And, like, he knew. So he was brilliant. He was unbelievable. He was like a savant. Yeah. He yeah. had the most incredible mind to recall things and remember things that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Just it's astonishing. It's an unbelievable story. Oh. And, and and just for the listeners out there, I never gave him any hints. Right. And I never stumped the Jeff. Never once. Never once. Never stumped the Jeff. But the, the fact that he could feel the record label and tell me what, if it was Columbia or if it was, you know, United or, you know, whatever. And he was right. And if I told him what song was on once, it probably didn't matter what, so, what song, what side. Yeah. I'd read one song and flip it over and say what's on the other side and he would tell me yeah, that's a great story never ever stumped the jeff so so let me ask you this so oh yeah i want to read you a quote that i picked up uh from the star after jeff died um jeff was an amazing colleague and as a musician and a personality in a league of his own the jazz wizards drummer gary scriven said on sunday night yes it was always game on for him. His generosity, th this you'll like, his generosity and sense of humor lasted till the end. Yep. He was brave, which is what you said before, without ever being dramatic. In a word, Jeff was inspirational. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt, 500%. Was he brave on stage? Oh, yeah. When he was playing those licks, was he brave? Oh, yeah. No, he went for it, you know, and, and he had bad notes. Yeah. Here and there yeah. once in a while, but he always managed to sort of creep it up to the right note, you know. Um, we never really, we never really had set lists. You didn't? Uh, no. We had must plays, which is like Angel Eyes and Roadhouse and, yeah. um, you know, stuff like that. And But he would pull stuff out of the bag all the time, almost every night. He'd say, yeah, we're going to do such and such a song, key of E, a one, a two, and we'd... You know, so you ha you had to be on top of your game. Could you always stay up with it? Yeah, you could. You could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a silly question. You're a professional musician, right, at that level. But I'm often wondering: as the guy says, a Jeff Healy says, we're going to do it in E. Is there like musicians up there who just like get lost? Well, they hang back and see if they can figure out what he's doing. Yeah. You know? But I, you know, I I was uh, quite a bit quite a bit older than him. Right. 12 years or something like that. And uh, can I tell you the story? Yeah, please. Of, of how he got me <laughs> Whatever the into, story the, is. into the band? Whatever the story is, tell it. Yeah. Okay. And he was coming out when, when it, well, first of all, whenever he was in town off his tours, I, I had a house gig at Grossman's you know, every Monday or every Tuesday, stuff like that. You play with Danny Marks? I have, but. But I had my own trio. Yeah. And I would always have, uh, he'd call me up and say, can I come down and play with you guys all night? 
Right. You know, sure. So he came down dozens and dozens and dozens of times, week after week, to play with us. And uh, Tom Steven, their drummer slash manager, would come down too, and, he, and he'd sit in with us. And he uh, he saw the chemistry between us. And they were in the studio doing the cover-to-cover album. It was all studio. But at that point, it was a little... Jeff was a little disenamored with the whole thing. And, and you know, it was they were having a hard time getting him to come in and play. Well, the way they were doing the album is they put the drums down. Then the bass player come in and put the bass down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, the, and, you know, they would send... They probably recorded 30 songs. And they would send, you know, the rough mixes or whatever to Clive Davis and Arista. And Clive would go, no, no, no. No, no, and I've heard the recordings, and they were a little sleepy. They were, the energy level wasn't what you're used right. to hearing. Right. Sorry if that offends anybody out there, but <clears throat> he, um, Tom Panunzio, who was the producer, Tom Steven brought him down on one of my gigs to see me and Jeff play together, and Tom Panunzio went, "That's what we need on the record." Yeah, that energy, you know. So they got the Comfort Sound mobile unit on a Friday and Saturday night. We did a unannounced word-of-mouth surprise gig at Grossman's two nights in a row with the Phantoms. That must be Drum God Booze band, band at the time. Right. And they recorded us. Jeff called me up and said, we're going to do this live recording on Friday and Saturday night at Grossman's, and I want you to be the fourth in the band. I want you to come play it do it with us and I said okay are you going to send me some tapes or CDs or anything of you know what we're going to be doing nope he says no <laughs> I said what do you mean no yeah. so well we're just going to be doing the songs that we're recording in the studio but live and I said well what are you doing you'll see <laughs> and, I, and I said well, <laughs> that's really well, nice you're not going to give me any hint nope he said, well, what, um, I mean, he knows me. He's a guy I can sit in with just about anybody yeah. and and play the, pick up on the song right away and play it. Right. I mean, I've been playing a long time. So I said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you, to, we're going to play as a trio, and I want you to come in and do what you do. Put the icing on it. And I said, okay. So we went down, we did a sound check, and at sound check, he said, we want to open up with an instrumental. Um, um, you got any ideas? And there's a song called I'm Coming Home. Right. Old song, instrumental, although I think it had words originally. I had been playing this with my band, my other band, uh, the McDonald Rush Band, Mike McDonald. Yes. Great guitar player, great friend as well. And I said, well, I've got the song that Mike and I play. And he said, well, show it to us. So I showed it to them, and we opened up the night with that. You know, that was the only rehearsal we had. <laughs> Not of any of the songs that they're doing in the studio. None of, none of their stuff that I needed to, to know. And so we did it. It's actually out, and, and they sent it to Clive Davis. And it was really good. Was it? Yeah. Is. It's, it's, it's finally out after all these years. Yes. 
some European company has released it. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we did the whole show. They recorded it live. They mixed it. They sent the rough mixes to Clive Davis, and Clive Davis went, "Wow, this is really good." But I don't want a live album. So Tom and Tom, the producer and the drummer, put their heads together and said, "Okay." We'll do this all over again, but in the studio. Oh, really? So we went into the studio and played everything live off the floor. Same tunes and uh, and, a, and a few more that I hadn't heard yet, but it was a cover-to-cover -cover album. So, you know, there was a Hendrix tune on there and an Neil Young tune, and, you know, it was, it was all covers. Which Neil Young tune was it? Was it Like a Hurricane? Great song. Wait, did you get nervous? We did, we did Angel. By do, Hendrix. Do you get nervous we when did stop breaking down? Right. Like the Stones did a version of that. Uh, would I get nervous going into the studio? No. Not going into the studio, but with studio. Jeff giving you such little notice and not telling you what you're going to play. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But I've always been on most of the bands and gigs I've gotten over the years. Even when I lived down south, was me coming in with my guitar and asking to sit in. Yes, and then one of the bands in New Orleans, the guitar player, wanted to leave, but he wouldn't leave until he he was happy with the replacement. I sat in, and he said, well, "I can quit now." Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah, and I joined that band. That's the band that I moved down to New Orleans to play yeah. with. Yeah, but uh, no, I'm you know I'm like I said I, I'm I'm confident enough in my own. I assume so. Playing and everything, and I've been doing it a long time, and. A, a good portion of my life has been sitting in with people. So you have to have, I've got really good ears, quick ears. Yes. I can tell what key it's in before I don't have to ask. Right. I can hear E, I can hear A, I can hear D, you know, I can, I can tell. I, I don't have perfect pitch, but I, I think I have what they call relative pitch, which is this far away from perfect pitch. So when you look at the <clears throat> neck, I've always wondered this about, guitarists who are very fast do you do you see what's about to come and do you know that that sound goes with this sound do you know the whole neck intimately so much so yeah. that you know what sounds go with the others like yeah. sometimes you're going to miss a fret right it's just the way it is yeah but mostly you know the sounds that go with ironically it. enough the the two blind guitar players that i played with used to used to uh, either overshoot or undershoot all the time would they yeah. Yeah. But they knew how to go, how to bend it up. Just to, to bring the right it back. Note. Yes. They knew how to get out of it. Yes. Would and, you and see, would you see when they overshot? Would you see that? I'd hear it. You'd hear it. Yeah. Yeah. But I would also hear how they corrected it, you know. But then Dickie Betts told me one time, and you'll hear it on Almond Brothers albums a lot from him. He'll be playing a note and hit a flat note or a sharp note. And so then he'll go back and he'll do it again, or maybe again. He'll do it two or three times in a row and hit that wrong note on purpose. Oh. And the reason he did that is he said, if you hit a wrong note, go back and do it again or two or three more times. Yeah. Then people think, oh, how clever. That's jazz. Yeah. Yeah. This oh, is what jazz. I was thinking. Wow. <laughs> that was an interesting choice of notes. The tricks of the trade, eh? And it's, you know, it could be the worst note in the world, but if you did it two or three times... People start to believe it. Well, they think, 
oh well he's doing that on purpose i right. guess he meant to do that right 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 which which is very clever yeah no no it's very bright i've it's used it bright. myself a few times have you although i don't, I don't hit bad notes very often <laughs> i saw your eyes roll yeah well, you know. so you've had this huge buzz happening in your life what do you do nowadays to get that buzz well i spent the entire 70s 80s and a lot of the 90s and into the 2000s touring yeah not not at home yes I always had a home. I always had a, a bed. I always had a TV set. I always had, you know, records at home, stuff, and people. But I didn't spend a lot of time, you know, over the years there. And now, I really love being home. You do? I do. Yeah. Not to say if somebody that I wanted to play with offered me a tour, as long as it's not a year long or something, but it's not saying I wouldn't do it. It's just saying that I like playing more locally now when I do play. I right. don't, don't play a lot these days. And I really love being home. So what do you do at home? With Patsy and Poppy. Yeah. Um, well, I make make use of my Lazy Boy and my big flat screen TV. How big is it? I don't know, 40. Yeah, I have one too. I love it. Something like that. I love it. And it's all hooked up to a studio monitors. <laughs> right. I figured know, as everything. much. Great sound. You know. So you watch movies? Watch movies, uh, some series. I watch uh, a lot of uh, music stuff, you know, yeah. concerts and stuff. It's best seat in the house. I know. You can see everybody. The sound is perfect. I know. And there's nobody banging into you. Or... <laughs> right. No one's throwing popcorn at you. Did you see A Star is Born? Yes. What would you think? I really liked it. Mm, I didn't. I thought, first of all, I thought Lady Gaga, I mean, I... I've, I've, I love her voice. I do, too. When, when she sings, not so much with some of her songs, but I don't know if you've ever seen any footage of her play, playing the piano in a New York cafe before she made it, stuff like I've that. I've seen a bunch of stuff on her. She is She sits down at the piano. She's great. And gives it the honest sing. Yes. It, she's, she's killer. She is. But what really killed me was Bradley Cooper. Yeah. I was not expecting that. I was surprised at how good he was. Yeah. You know, I think he must have been as well. I think the acting jobs were a tiny bit over the top. Maybe a lot. A lot. But they were good. But Do you have a famous do you have a favorite rock and roll uh movie? Well, my current one would be Bohemian Rhapsody. Did you like it? I thought uh what what's his name? Uh uh Annie uh, Yeah, I forget. Yeah. He did a fucking fantastic job he did man he really did he nailed it and everybody else the cast the casting was was really well done right it's right. a great story right i've always uh sort of wondered you know you know you know he 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 hid the fact he was gay to begin with yes let me tell you a good freddie mercury story okay years ago in new orleans back in the 70s it was their first album. Was it 72 or 73? Way back when, yeah. They had come on their first tour to the U.S. supporting that album. And I was at the warehouse in New Orleans. I believe it was the Almond Brothers. It might have been Humble Pie was playing. And I played there many times. And I went up in the dressing room, and I was hanging out upstairs in the dressing room. There's all these long-haired hippies and everybody's, you know. The boys. Over in the corner. There was this little guy 
black, long black hair. Is is sort of when he had the helmet hair. Head, yes. You know. You know when. Yeah, his buck teeth. Fucking beaver teeth. Yeah. All dressed in black jacket, black leather, black pants, black fingernails, and black lipstick. Yeah. And, of course, in that group of hippies in that dressing room, he looked. He didn't quite fit, eh? Very (laughs) different. Yeah. He was just sitting over there in the corner by himself, and he was looking around, and he was watching everything go on. So, finally, I walked over, and I said, hi, I'm Pat, you know play guitar with so-and-so here in New Orleans. And he said, oh, hi, I'm Freddie. And I said, great. I said, what brings you here, you know? He said, well, I'm on my first American tour with my band. And I said, oh, oh, cool. I said, what's the name of your band? And he said, Queen. And I went, oh, interesting. Good name. (laughs) Yeah, cool. I said, what kind of stuff do you play? He goes, oh, rock, heavy rock band. I said, cool, you know, and, and we chatted for a little while, and then I moved on somewhere else. But I just remember seeing him stand there. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who Queen was. Yeah, yeah. It, everybody didn't know who Queen was yet. Soon enough to find out. Soon enough you found out, yeah. Did you know the dead at all, Grateful Dead? No. Yeah. I had a buddy who was in a hotel down in Florida after going through some difficult times in life. He's playing guitar, my friend. This guy knocks on his door. He says, oh, I noticed you've been playing guitar <clears throat> he goes yeah i like playing guitar he goes oh can i sit in and listen he goes sure that'd be great who are you they start to talk and uh soon enough they start to play together was it jerry yeah wow yeah it was jerry garcia yeah so listen you fix guitars nowadays right i have been at long Macquarie part-time for 30 years you still love it mm. anything to do with guitars you just love it yep it's been my uh Excuse me. Not that I haven't done well and made a living through all the years as a guitarist. Yeah. There were some years that were better than others. But uh, when I graduated high school in 1970, I went to a place called the Music Mart, Smyrna, Georgia, and asked them if they had, because I had already been working on my own guitars in my dad's garage. Yes. On his work, in his workshop. And I said, do you have a guitar repair? They said, no. I said, would you like one? I said, sure. I said, give me a space, and I'll give you 30% of everything I bring in. Right. They started advertising it. Great addendum to that story. When I, when I left to move to, that was in Atlanta, when I left to move down to New Orleans, we advertised for an apprentice. Got a guy in, and a uh, young kid. And I taught him everything I could in a couple of weeks, and then I left. I went back there in the 90s, I guess. Stopped by, sat in the office with one of the the old managers, had a beer. And I said to him, yeah, you know, whatever happened to that that kid that uh, took over the repair shop? And he goes, oh, you mean Grover? And I said, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, his name is Grover. And he goes, Grover Jackson. Right. And I said, <laughs> no way. He said, Grover Jackson, yeah. Jackson Guitars. Yeah. <laughs> it was him. That's pretty cool. That was, I mean, you know, and he, he came in. He was fresh, and I was teaching him how to do setups. He must be a great teacher. I guess. 
But then when I moved to New Orleans, um, I went to a local store there and did the same thing, uh, Sound City in New Orleans. And that was in the early, early 70s. And give me a space. I'll give you 30% of everything that comes in. I, I fixed Albert King guitar in there. Did you? I fixed Paul McCartney's bass right before the Venus and Mars sessions. Did you really? It was Rickenbacker, yeah. What was wrong with it? Do you remember? They dropped something on top of the, it. was an ammo case, and they broke the pickguard and had a pick pickup in it. So I called Rickenbacker out in California, gave him the serial number, and I said, I think you might want to send me some parts to fix this. And they looked it up, and they went, Paul McCartney's bass? They go, said, sure. Yeah. Overnight. Do you like Rickenbacker? stuff in. Yeah. You do I, like? I've got a George Harrison 12-string Rickenbacker. Nice. And I've got uh, Susanna Hoff's model yeah. from the Bangles. Yeah. They're beautiful guitars. They are. Yeah. The cool thing about Rickenbackers is you, they could, they look like they're vintage. Yeah, that's right. And they look like George Jetson could have played one. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I do. They look yeah. futuristic. They do. But they look old school. So, so let me ask you a question here. There's a, a website called spindity.com. Have you ever heard of it? Whatever. It's a music guitar. So they list the top 10 acoustic guitar brands and the top 10 electric guitar brands. Tell me in your mind the top five uh, acoustic best guitars out there. Gibson, Martin. Yeah. I hesitate to say it. Larabee Taylor. Okay. And... Can't even think of a fifth. So I'll tell you, your yours were all in the top five. They list Martin as number one. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I th- I guess it's I'm a Gibson guy. I like their J forty five. Think it's the best acoustic ever made. It records the best. How much is a J forty five nowadays? Oh, these days are thousands. 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 Many thousands. Yeah. They list Taylor as number two. Okay. Uh, Gibson is number three. Okay. Okay. Number four is a Guild. Yeah, the guilds aren't, aren't what they used to be. The old guilds were. Here, here's some one that might surprise you. Number five is a Seagull. Seagulls are very reliable and affordable guitars. They are affordable. The stuff that Leslie Doe over in Quebec In makes Quebec, them. yeah, and they're they, handmade, they make, right? They make Seagulls, Simon and Patrick. Godin. Art and Luther, Godin, uh, Norman. Right, you know, right. They're uh, reliable guitars. They're sturdy. They last. So you like them. Okay. You know what the best uh, in any price range uh, uh, guitars that I like, acoustics? Yamaha. So Yamaha's next. Why do you like the Yamahas? Yamahas are very reliable. You can People bring ones they bought back in the 70s, back when they were made in Japan. Yeah. And, and they're still great. You set them up. They sound great. They play great. Ovation's number seven. Uh, I'm not a fan. Why? Never have been. Just don't like the design. The curve on the back? The r- round back. They're a little difficult to work on. Washburn's number eight. Washburn? I have a, I have a 1915 Washburn. 1915? Parlor. Yeah. How does it sound? Great. Does it? Plays and sounds great. You did some work on it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number nine is a Fender, and number 10 is ep- Epiphone. Yeah. Yeah, well, for the... They don't really make upper level guitars much. Most of theirs are, you know, pedestrian. The Epiphone. Cheaper, yeah, yeah, five hundred and below. Fender and, and Epiphone both. Their acoustics are fairly cheap. 
Yeah, I know. I was at Best Buy and I saw they were selling Fender guitars. I go, what? Don't, the, don't buy one. No, I thought buy. that was weird. <laughs> I'm going to go through the, the 10 electrics and then we're going to wrap up the interview. All right. So, so tell me tell me in the top five. Give me three. Uh, Gibson, Fender, and Rickenbacker. Yeah, so Gibson number one. Yep. Fender number two. Yep. Right? I think everyone would agree with that. PRS. Yeah, I'm not a fan. What is PRS? Paul Reed Smith. Oh, Paul Reed Smith. Yeah. You don't like Paul Reed Smith? No, I I like him. (laughs) But you wouldn't put them that high? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, They're not for everybody. Okay. They're really well-made guitars. Very sound great. Great necks, play great and everything like that. But it's, it's sort of... Typical Paul Reed Smith is sort of like trying to marry a Gibson and a Fender. Is that sort of a Fender body with a Gibson Fender Gibson neck with the arch top of like Les Paul? Yeah, on it, sort of Les Paul meets Fender Stratocaster, and it just doesn't work. Trying to be everything to everybody sounds kind of like a Gibson, you know. Number four is a G and L. They're great. Number five is a Rickenbacker. Love Rickenbackers. They're not for everybody. Why I, I aren't they? Uh, they're a little finicky. They're delicate. Yeah. You know, you really got to take care of them or the neck goes south. You know. But um, six is Ibanez. Ibanez is huge. I mean, all the shredders. <clears throat> they like Ibanez, Jackson, Charvel. Right. Yes, ESP. So seven is ESP. Eight is a Jackson. Nine is Schechter. They're similar similar to the Jacksons. I have a Schechter. It's called the Diamond Edition. And number 10 is Epiphone. Epiphone, right. So I have to tell you, man, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I, was, I really enjoyed it. I have to. I have to. I'm sure there's tons more to talk about, but I guess your time is up. we, we got to wrap it up here. I uh, My son's bar mitzvah is coming up, so i got to do a bunch of work for it. I'd ask you to play, but it's on Shabbos. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I mean when I say Shabbos? Yeah. Did you know any Jewish rock and rollers when you're going through your career? I may have. Jewish outwardly? No. No? Okay. I think Michael Belotin might have been Jewish. Danny Marks is. Uh, well, I know him. Yeah, Danny's going to do the show, actually. We, we played together quite a few times. They call him the human jukebox. Yeah, he's something, Danny, he is. isn't he? Yep. He is something. But um, I feel as Tell though hi for me. I will say hello. When uh, when I was doing this interview with you, Pat, I felt as though, and maybe I'm being dramatic and romantic, but I felt as though we were doing something really historic. I really did. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. did you yeah, feel that it felt, too? It felt really good, yeah. I felt as though the things that you were telling me um, were so significant in their own way and perhaps things that people haven't heard before. Well, they were all um, sort of highlights. Right. There's a whole lot more, tons more. Well, we're going to have to do another interview. But as an example, when you told me about, when you asked Johnny about what his site is like, like that's a very intimate, private thing. And yeah. I want to I thank you for sharing that. Because it is historic in nature. Johnny Winters was huge. Yes. You know, when we talk about music and we talk about the guitars in this century and before, Johnny Winters is like a king, right? If I can leave you with anything. Yes, please. It's winter. Yeah, I keep saying winters. I'm sorry. It's yeah. not Jonathan Winters. 
I loved him though too. He, he was too. hilarious. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I loved him. I just watched the piece with him. I see so and many, D. Martin. So many people. and uh, I've, Johnny been, I've been correcting that. You know, people do Facebook things and talk about Johnny Winters. Yeah, yeah. And so I just say Winter. Yeah, I apologize. And then, no, no, it's okay. Yeah. And then they come back and go, oh yeah, right, sorry. And the, and the other correction I am always making is how you spell Healy. H e a l e y. Yes. There's an e in There's there. There's an e in there. Yes, I know. I know. I see it all the time. Yeah. Just L Y. Healy. Yes. E Y. Yeah. So listen, thank you for giving us so much music. Oh. And thank you for bringing great joy to I'm sure thousands, thousands of people. That's a really big deal. A really big deal. Thank you very much. Ugh, I'm so grateful for you being here. I really I'm, am. I'm thankful that. I've been able to do this for so long. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. Have you ever done an interview like this before? I've done quite a few. Like a long one like this? I like my long interviews. Sometimes. Yeah, have you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Actually, I, Danny had me on his radio show one time. On Jazz. Jazz FM, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was when Johnny died. Oh, that must have been a good interview. Oh, Johnny Winter. So I want to thank our listeners as well uh, for listening to Hat Radio. Um, stay tuned with us because we got some great interviews coming down the road. I'm really excited about the uh, podcast. Cool. And I have a great vision for it, a great belief. Thank you, Avram. Thank you for very having much. me. Thank you Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, so listen, and uh, you, you have been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes, and God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the heights